brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We have previously suffered and have been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we are gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toils and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each other with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles, so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Thanks, Mike. I trust you uh, got your bulletin on the way in, and there's a few things there that... Uh, Which profession... You ever thought about that question? Which professions do you trust the most? Uh, that's a question which the Reader's Digest asks its readers every year in an annual survey that they do. When they get the results in, they then rank the professions from 1 to 40 in order of uh, to what extent people trust people in those professions. And so uh, it really, to me it comes as no surprise that the most trusted professions are the emergency services and the caring professions. So ambulance officers, uh, firemen and nurses uh, top the rankings. Uh, these are people, when you think about it, uh, who we have to trust. I mean, if, you, if, if you don't trust the ambulance officer or the fire, these are the people whose lives are in our hands. So they must be trustworthy. And there's no surprise who comes in at the bottom of the list either. Uh, now, if you're here today and you're a salesman, 
or a politician or a telemarketer, uh, then um, we, I know that there are some very good salesmen, telemarketers and politicians, but these are the professions that hit the bottom rankings. And when you think about it, that's no surprise either. Uh, not, by, not just because of our experience, but uh, these are people whose job requires them to, to say things, to use their mouths and their tongues to make promises and to persuade people. Uh, and so we've all experienced the hollow promises. We've all experienced the, the charm, uh, the insincere flattery, uh, which people use to sell us a product or a, or a service or to buy our vote. Don't you like those telemarketers? They phone you up and they say, how are you today, sir? Or how are you today, ma'am? Here's a tip for you. Next time a telemarketer phones you up and asks you how you are, why don't you tell them uh, in fine and lengthy detail uh, all the details of how you actually are. And we'll see how sincere the question actually is. It's all about credibility, isn't it? Uh, when someone's actions match their words, then they're very credible. But when their actions do not match their words, then it's a different story. Uh, this is a issue for us as Christians. Uh, because as Christians, our credibility counts. Our lives and our words uh, must be matched. It's particularly a, an issue for those who are in Christian leadership, uh, that uh, people will assess their message by the life, the life that they live. Now, of course, uh, in the first century Mediterranean world, this was an issue that the apostles came up against time and time again. Uh, because the situation for them was that sometimes people could actually diminish someone else's credibility by saying things about their lives which weren't actually true. Uh, in the first century, Greeks loved philosophy and they loved philosophers. We've talked about this before, that uh, uh, in the first and the second centuries, around that period of time, uh, you would have... Uh, uh, speakers who would travel around from town to town on the speaker's circuit, uh, setting up their soapbox and uh, teaching uh, philosophy, new ideas, uh, new thoughts. They'd gather people around them and they did it for a living because uh, in the Greco-Roman world people were entertained uh, by that kind of thing. Uh, those of you who are old enough might remember in Sydney down at the Domain, what used to happen on the weekends at the Domain, that people would go there, set up this, and you'd go there to listen to people, wouldn't you? Is that right, Grace? Yes, it doesn't happen these days. Now, someone could also do that and target the religious market. Uh, uh, they, they could actually preach and teach religious ideas for the sake of cleaning out the pockets of people who were more spiritual. And sometimes that would be the case also with Christians. They would target Christians. They would preach about God, not because they believed, but because that's how they made their money. I think of them as being religious salesmen. 
But in 1 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul, he's writing on behalf of himself and his co-workers, Silas and Timothy. In 1, Timothy, 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says of him and his co-workers, we are not like that. That's not us. We're not like those religious salesmen. Now, it may be that some of Paul's enemies were trying to undermine his reputation and were saying things about Paul uh, to attack his credibility. Uh, they might have been saying to people, look, don't believe Paul, don't believe Silas, don't believe Timothy, because they're just in it for the money. And so what he does in this passage, in uh, verses 1 through to 12, Paul defends their credibility. Now he has to do that. It's not simply because of his reputation. It's because his reputation uh, has an impact on whether or not people are going to believe the message that he preaches. And so people's eternal salvation is, is the issue here. What's at stake is the believability of the message. So, why should Paul and his companions be trusted? There's two points that I want to draw out of this passage this morning. Firstly, in verses 1 through to 6, their message was believable because they were prepared to suffer for their message. Uh, you see it in verse 2 where Paul points out, he says, We dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. So let's step back into uh, Paul's world for a moment. He was on his second missionary journey in Acts 17. Before he got to Thessalonica, what town was he in? Does anyone remember? It begins with a P. Philippi. All right. And in Philippi, uh, when Paul uh, preached the gospel in the synagogues, uh, it split people, it divided people. Uh, a lot of the God-fearing Gentiles decided to believe the gospel uh, and some Jews as well, others didn't. And it uh, provoked, provoked uh, hostility. Uh, it was interesting on Friday night, for those of you there listening to Bob Mendelssohn, who talked about when he as a Jew became a Christian or a, a fulfilled Jew, what that actually meant in terms of his relationships. He was ostracised, he was cut off, uh, he was disowned by his parents. Now, uh, that's what happened in uh, Philippi, uh, and Paul uh, and uh, his companions were arrested, they were stripped naked, they were beaten, and they were thrown in prison. Now, what did he do after that? Well, they got out of Philippi, they went to the next town. They went to Thessalonica, preached the gospel in Thessalonica. Some people believed the gospel, became Christians. And we're told that uh, a, a mob formed, a mob, and that there was riots in the city because of Paul. Now, Paul suffered, as did Silas and Timothy, physically. Uh, why would they continue to preach the gospel if that was the reaction uh, that, that they received. Uh, if they were just in it for the money, 
what do you think they'd do? Well, they'd change their message, wouldn't they? Uh, they would, uh, they would think, find a different message, a message which uh, was which everyone liked, a message which would be more approved by the population. But in verse four, it's not man's approval that counts, is it? Whose approval is it that counts? In verse four, it is God's approval. It's God's approval. And so, when they suffer because of the gospel. Uh, what is in fact happening, and you see it there, is that God is testing their hearts to see whether the, you know the, they're refining them. It actually proves uh, where their hearts are at. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if a person is willing to suffer for a message, then it's far more likely that they actually believe the message to be true. And a person like that doesn't need to use tricks. Uh, Paul talks there about the uh, potential use of tricks. Um, you see it uh, in, verse, in verse 3. He says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error, that is, we don't think that our gospel's wrong, we think it's correct, or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. The Greek word there for trick you is interesting. It's the word which means a, a fishing hook with some bait on it. That's a very picturesque language, isn't it? Uh, we're not trying to bait you. You know, the, the bait looks pretty attractive to the fish because he doesn't see the hook uh, that is within that bait. Paul says we're not trying to trick you. We didn't use tricks. Uh, in verse 5... He says, you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. What's the difference, by the way, by the way between complimenting a person and flattering a person? Uh, when you're complimenting a person, whose interest are you concerned about? Uh, for whose benefit is the, is the compliment made? It's for the benefit of of the person you're making the compliment to because you want to encourage them. Now you can say exactly the same thing and it, but it can be flattery. Uh, for whose benefit is the comment made when it's flattery? It's for your benefit. It's for the benefit of the person making the comment because they want the other person to feel good about them. Uh, they want to, uh, they turn on the charm, the the sweet talk, the smooth talk, so that the other person will become uh, ingratiated with them, that they, will, that they will follow that person, that they'll join their group, their church, their ministry, their whatever. They flatter people for their benefit. And so Paul didn't do that. He'd rather go to prison than change the message and make it more flattering to people. Um, and, and that's the first reason why Paul and his companions can be trusted. The second reason is in verses 6 through to 12, and it's because of the way that they lived. Actually, let me read some of that for you. Picking up at the second part of verse 6, where he says, As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. 
because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. When they visited Thessalonica, uh, they didn't ask the locals um, for a bed and to uh, provide food for them and to look after all of their needs. Uh, They could have. The Bible clearly teaches that people in full-time ministry uh, should be looked after materially by those who they serve. Paul himself makes this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, you know, remember that passage in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, you know, what soldier serves on the front line at his own expense or what you know, farmer doesn't reap some benefit from the harvest? And he quotes from the Old Testament where the law says that do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And he says, well, surely that actually refers uh, to us. Uh, the worker deserves his wages, etc., etc. So it's quite clear in the scriptures that people in uh, full-time ministry uh, ought to be provided for by those whom they serve. But there were situations where Paul and his companions decided to give up that right uh, for issues of credibility. Uh, That was what happened in in, in Corinth, they gave up that right in Corinth, and they also gave up the right in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they chose to work with their hands. He says, night and day we worked, uh, presumably tent making, so that they did not receive any material help. And that's the proof. If anyone's going to say, well, these guys are just in it for the money, they're just lining their own pockets. Paul's able to say, hey, no way. Uh, We didn't use, you know, I was going to say the trade union's credit card for (laughs) whatever, you know. No, he says, we actually worked so that we were not a burden for you. We're not, that's the exact opposite to the religious salesman. Actually, what I found interesting is that Christians around that time really got fed up with uh, travelling preachers who were just in it for the money. And towards the back end of the first century or the the early part of the second century, we're not quite sure exactly, uh, there was a book which was produced, a Christian book called The Didache. Anyone heard of The Didache before? Uh, um, It's not scripture and... Uh, but a lot of Christians read it. Uh, some parts of it are quite legalistic and don't actually match with the scriptures. But it gives us an interesting insight into how some of the Christians were thinking at that time. And it's got some advice on how they should view what attitude they should have towards travelling preachers. You want to hear some of that advice? Well, you're going to hear it anyway, so <laughs> that's a rhetorical question. Listen to what it says. 
in one section it says, if a visiting apostle remains somewhere for three days, he's a false teacher. <laughs> I mean, if he was there for two days, that'd be fine. Three days? No, he's a false prophet, it says. Uh, another part, it says, if he takes anything from God's people except for a loaf of bread, he's a false prophet. Uh, if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. Now, it's not biblical, but you can, you can feel the frustration there, can't you? Uh, and what Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying is, well, actually, we're not like that. We're squeaky clean. Nobody could accuse us of being like that. And one of the critical reasons for this is because they loved people whom they were reaching and teaching. They loved people. You see it in verse 7. In verse 7, he says, we, we cared for you like a mother caring for her children. I'm not sure what sort of picture that conjures up in your mind, but the thought I had is that most mothers I know, they care for their kids, they feed them, they clothe them, they look after them, they give their lives for their kids. They don't exploit their kids. They don't rip their kids off unless they've got some fairly significant problems. Uh, in verse 11, he says, we dealt with you as a, as a father deals with his children. And so we encouraged you, we comforted you, and we urged you to live lives that were worthy of God. So that's how they treated people uh, in Thessalonica. He puts it very nicely in verse 8. When he says, we loved you so much that we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Uh, he goes on in verse 10 to say, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. See, the issue is credibility. It's credibility. And what we see here in Paul is that he's saying the kind of people that we were when we were amongst you was that we were transparent. Uh, you got to know us. We got to know you. Our lives were laid bare for you to see. That's important, isn't it? Thanks, Ben. I got some, uh, I've got some fear is the issue of credibility. It's knowing the words, knowing the life, and seeing if they are in sync. And that's why Paul says in verse 8, he says, we shared our lives with you. Uh, we weren't the virtual pastor. We weren't even the professional pastor. You know, the professional idea, the pastor, the, the chief executive pastor, the, there's a kind of a barrier between him and the rest of the congregation. You'll never get to talk to him and, and that sort of thing. Paul says, no, no, no. We shared our lives with you. We were an open book. You could hear our gospel, you could see our lives and you could see whether or not there's a match. Because credibility counts. And it sure did count for the Thessalonians because have a look at verse 13. Uh, verse 13. In verse 13, 
Uh, Paul says, and we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, uh, you accepted it as not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So the Thessalonians had heard their preaching, had witnessed their lives, and they believed. Now, of course, it ultimately was because the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts, uh, changing them and, uh, and opening their minds and their hearts to the gospel. But friends, and so you, you can become a Christian by listening to a tape. <laughs> I heard of a bloke who was a farmer who was out harvesting his crop out Narrabri way and just going hours and hours and hours up and down the, you know, all by himself for 10 hours and he listened to a sermon tape from a preacher and he became a Christian. And a few years later he met that Christian, that preacher and said, I became a Christian through your preaching when I was harvesting out there at Narrabri, right? <laughs> so, you know, that, that can happen. But God, see, God uses people and he uses our words and he uses our lives. And with Paul, Silas and Timothy... As far as the Thessalonians was concerned, it was a match. It was also true of some of the churches that they knew about. Uh, have a look in verse 14. Uh, in verse 14, he says, For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Uh, you suffered from your countrymen the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews. Uh, the Thessalonian believers became imitators of the Jewish Christians in Judea who also had this credibility factor because uh, they had been suffering persecution but they had stood firm and the Thessalonians imitated them. So credibility counts. So I want to therefore ask questions about our credibility, uh, your credibility and mine. I must admit when I saw the Reader's Digest um, survey results, uh, I thought to myself, never mind who came at the top and who came, where do ministers fit? <laughs> what do you reckon? Do you reckon we'd be in the top half or in the bottom half? Want to do a vote on this? Top half, put your hand up. All right. Bottom half. Okay, I think we need to take a count <laughs> or a division of the house. I'll let you in on the secret. We came in at number 25. That puts us at the bottom half. That's the bottom half of the rankings. Uh, just one ranking above financial planners just one ranking below weather forecasters. <laughs> That's disappointing, but there's no surprises there, is there? Because when the average person in the street thinks about a religious leader, what is it that shapes their thinking? How have they formed their opinion? Well, there'll be a lot of factors involved in that. Uh, but uh, one thing's for sure, 
would be what they read in the newspapers about scandal and about immorality, or what they see on TV, the televangelist with his private jet and his shiny suit and his sparkling teeth who wants your credit card details. And it just doesn't cut it, does it? People, I think it's particularly true in Australian culture, people can see through hypocrisy and, and falsehood. And for Aussies in particular, when the message doesn't match the actions, it just doesn't cut it. They'll say, no, I'm not going to believe, not interested. Because credibility counts. And it counts for every one of us. You've heard the stories, haven't you, of um, people who have uh, become disillusioned or have turned away from uh, wanting to be interested in finding out about Christian things because they've heard stories. Thanks, Ben. Uh, a few years ago, we were in Malaysia. In verse 12, Paul urged the Thessalonians to live lives that are worthy of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to live lives that are worthy of the creator of the universe, the holy, righteous God who made us and who loved us? Paul says they urge them to live lives worthy of God. And so, therefore, should we. We should do that uh, for many reasons. One, of course, being because it's the right response to the gospel. It's the re right response to God loving us by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And it honours God. But it does more. The honour and the name of God is what's at stake and the credibility of the gospel message. Because when our goals... When our priorities, when our speech, our love, uh, our views on money, our humility, our morality, when our wisdom, when these things are shaped by the word of God, then our lives will be noticeably different from the world around. Noticeably different. And when our lives are noticeably different, guess what? People will take notice of our message, of our words, and that they'll see that they're a match. Credibility counts. So let's be credible. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that uh, Paul was able to say that he and Silas and Timothy did live holy and upright lives uh, when they are in Thessalonica, uh, that the Thessalonians, he was able to write to them and say, you are witnesses of that. You see, judge us by our actions. And Father, we thank you that uh, their actions and their words were credible. We pray for ourselves that we too would be credible, that we would be so shaped by your word that our lives would be different. And we pray, Father God, that as we uh, 
uh, speak to people and tell people that we're Christians, that we go to church, that we love God, uh, that they wouldn't be surprised to hear that. They might actually say, hey, yeah, that seems to fit. We pray that uh, we would live such godly lives amongst the non-Christians that they would see our good deeds and they would ask us and they would be attracted uh, to our Saviour. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.